welcome to Hunting for Candlelands. This is episode nine. And this week we have an Australian Australaganza for you. Uh, there's a interview with Atlas Genius that I did via Skype. Atlas Genius is a band from from Australia, and I uh, talked to Keith from the band and talked about his uh, his tour, his his music, growing up in Australia, and also we have my friend Mike Schwartz, who will be talking about Australian cinema. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Keith, and thanks to Here Magazine, who set up the interview. Uh, you can read my interview with Keith. Not the interview, but an article I wrote using the interview on HereMagazine.com. Hi, Keith. Hey, Neil. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm uh, interviewing you for uh, Here Magazine in Michigan. And uh, also for my podcast, yeah. Um, where are you currently, right? Where are you currently? Uh, we're currently uh, on a freeway a couple of hours uh, out from Sacramento. We're on our way there for a show tonight. Um, I told my daughter I was interviewing an Australian band today, and then I had to tell her it wasn't the Wiggles, and she was kind of disappointed in that. Oh, okay. Tell her um, we're sorry about that, and... Uh, <laughs> and if we and if we see the wiggles, uh, we'll say hi for her. Um, awesome. Um, but I heard I, what I read was that from an early age you were more interested in the Beatles. Is that correct? Uh, we definitely grew up listening to a lot of the Beatles. Yeah. Was there any particular era of the Beatles that you were into? Like you know, early Beatles or or uh, or later Beatles? Um, I think it's just a really fascinating progression. Um, I mean, look now. I mean, I enjoy um, listening to the early stuff. Of course, it's, it's a lot simpler than what where they got to. But uh, I mean, when growing up, I mean, I was, I think I, I can't pretend I remember specifically listening to like early or later Beatles. But I know now. I mean, for me, uh, Abbey Road is one of my favorite albums. Um, you know, which was, which was the last album released, I think. So, um, but you know, it's a, it's all good. Um, and so Atlas Genius uh, was you with your brother Michael, and you grew up in Adelaide, correct? Yeah. And what I was yeah, that's right. okay. What I was just reading was that Adelaide is not is a pretty good place to grow up for someone that's into music. I mean, they have sort of an arts and music scene there. Yeah, we have a lot of festivals. We're known as the festival state. Um, we have, there's a, like for instance, there's a, a month long festival uh, called the. Uh, the Fringe Festival, which happens at the end of summer, uh, you know, where there's a lot of world music and a lot of uh, comedians, that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of cultural stuff that happens there, but it's also quite isolated, so it's it's got its own thing happening. Did you get the, Did you have the feeling like you needed to get out of town growing up? You know, like that you wanted to to to, to you know like yeah. a small town feeling that you wanted to get out of there. Yeah, I think that's yeah, definitely. That's I mean, I think a lot of people have that. Regardless of where they live, um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely had that. I definitely had that um, because it's just um, it. You know, whenever you live in a place that's isolated, there's just always that, that longing for for discovery and, and travel. So um, yeah, that was always that was always there. Did you did you look at England or at America as places that you wanted to go? I mean, that those seem did those seem like you know excited exciting places that you wanted to travel to at one point. Oh, I, I mean, definitely both of those. Um, I, um, England and uh, America are the sort of uh, mecca for, for music. That's where all the music we go up listening to came from, pretty much. So, um, absolutely. Um, so I read that you set up your studio with your, your dad and your brother, and it was where you worked on your first track, which was Trojans. <laughs> Oh yeah, everything we did, everything that we recorded was done there. Yeah. Were you working on a number of songs at the time, or did you just immediately start focusing on getting that one song done first? Was it all about getting Trojans done? No, we had a batch of songs. There's a whole lot of stuff that we were working on, and and it was that was just really just the first one that I mean I I know that that I really felt was was ready to go out. Um, it, it wasn't even that we thought it was particularly 
you know, special or anything. It's just that uh, this was the one that we thought, okay, that, that one's ready to go. Um, and we need to put something out if we want to get this band started, you know. So, um, so that's that's how it happened. How did you know how to produce a song? Like, how did you know how to record and produce and everything? Um, well, that's through just uh, teaching ourselves um, for a bunch of years, having I mean, living in an era where you you can have to get um, good microphones and, and, and computers nowadays to record your own stuff, multi-track. So there's just uh, trial and error and just spending time um, doing that. That's you know there, there was no, there's no substitute for just spending hundreds and thousands of hours in a studio recording sounds. That's that's what we did. So you, so you got to just experiment yeah. for a while, yeah. I mean, for a long time, I mean, I've been, ever since I got a computer that I could record with, I've been, you know, making noises and, 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 and making songs, yeah. yeah. Um, what were you studying at school, and what would have been your careers if music hadn't worked out? Uh, well, I was, I was studying architecture, so I would be... Uh, Hopefully, uh, if I had uh, chosen that part, be uh, designing houses, which you know, which is cool. But I have to be honest, I enjoy uh, I enjoy my my job more, I think, than than I would enjoy. So, so after Trojan hits and becomes a big internet sensation, um, that that must have been crazy for you guys. It was because it was. <sighs> I mean, because I, I, we we had no expectation that that song was going to do anything, even that anyone was going to hear it. I mean, it was really at the at the end of a of a bunch of years where we'd been writing and recording, and uh, and I was going to say to no avail, but that's not true. I mean, there's there's reward in just creating. That's I mean, one of the most satisfying things in life. I know for me personally is is the moment you finish a song. And you listen back, and it's exactly what you how you want it to be. I mean, that's a really satisfying feeling, more than more than a lot of other more than more than even like six quote unquote success where people um, are getting into it. So I mean, we had we enjoyed writing and recording, but but there wasn't any there wasn't any recognition of what we were doing. So um, we did, so we were at the point where we released Trojans, and we really kind of had had thought, well, no, no one's ever going to hear this stuff. Let's just um, just do this for ourselves. Yeah, and um, just looking on the internet, I'm noticing a lot of people wondering the exact meaning of Trojans in my head. Is that something you want to shed any light on? Exactly what you meant by that, or are you keeping it? Well, uh, that was that, no, that, no. I, I'm open about that one. Um, I'm cagey about a lot of the lyrics, but um, that the, the Trojan that's re- that's referencing the Trojan horse in Greek mythology. Yeah. So what was the recording process like going back after you realized Trojans was a hit? I know you went and started to work on an EP. Did you have a different mindset once you knew what was what was working as, uh, you know, what had worked to get that people liked or, or, or what changed? Um, any, I guess any experience you have changes you in some way, um, especially the experience of having... Uh, the recognition of Trojan definitely changed things a little bit, um, but you try to, to block that out to the, so that it's not doesn't affect the, the music too much. Um, it's one thing we didn't want to do, and I was really conscious about. And I, I said this a lot of times when we were in the studio: is we don't want to just try and just recreate another Trojan. Because when I was growing up, I, I always hated you hear a band and they had a song. It was a hit, and then you could just hear there was like four or five songs after that were just them trying to recreate it, and just you know doing pale imitations of the of the inspired song. And so, in, the, the, um, cause, I mean, Trojans was just a song that felt inspired. You know, we were working on it, and 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 things came together in a natural, organic way. And so, that's what we tried to do with all the other songs. Is is you see where like you, a song might start with a certain chord progression or a certain drum beat or whatever and, and then that you, you find that inspiring and so the, the, the right thing to do when you're writing a song is to just follow that and see where that takes you and and and, and turn that into a song that, that that feels honest and and the wrong way is to go and 
you know, use the same drum beat you did in Trojans and, and, and change the chords around a bit and then try to get another hit off that. I think that, that's, that's the wrong way of doing it. Yeah, that's like Chubby Checker who did The Twist and then the next summer he did Let's Twist again, you know, just trying to, to mark it on the same thing. Exactly. We, we didn't want to do a Chubby Checker. <laughs> um, so why did you do an EP uh, and then the album? I mean, how did how did that work, that you decided to first do a, a, a smaller thing and then and then a bigger thing? Well, we didn't want to rush the music out. We, we didn't want to rush an album out. And, and on the other hand, we also didn't want to leave people waiting two years before they heard another song. So um, the, the logical thing seemed to be to release an EP in, in, in the interim, interim. Right, uh, that makes sense. Um, did it take a while to develop what was going to be like your sound that would be, you know, that people would know it was, was Atlas Genius? Um, were you looking at other contemporary bands and saying, I'd like to have my band be in the same category as this? Or... Um, no, no. I think what, what we, by the time we were doing the EP and the album, we kind of worked out exactly what we wanted to do. It's, it's really just uh, the way we work is there's, there's a, kind of like a palette of sounds that we find appealing, um, and a palette of and not, not, not just sounds, but you know, ways of writing lyrics, ways of um, you know, getting your personality across. And so it wasn't. There was never like, hey, we want to fit in with this band or that band but of course I mean I, I know that people, people can listen to it and go oh this sounds like that band or whatever the funny thing I, you know, I always find really funny is that you know, I, if I ever do make the mistake of reading a review because I don't really think reviews are a handy thing for musicians to read but if I do read them sometimes it'll be someone re- saying oh this sounds exactly like a so and so band it's like a band I've never even heard of like, like and that, that's always it's always amusing when they think that that, that uh, that it sounds like, you know, we're heavily influenced by, by the band A or whatever it is, and I've never even heard of them. But, um, no, 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 but we didn't know, it wasn't like, we, it wasn't this um, conscious thing to, to make it sound like anyone in particular. Um, your current single is If So, which I heard first in the game FIFA 13. Um, yes, and, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I love that game, and it was—it's cool to have that song in there. Um, it seems, and it's—it's it's been interesting to see to look at how your how your progression has gone. Is that you have had a lot of use of um, the internet or, or a, a video game or different ways that people have be, have been hearing your music. So that you know, it's yeah. it's been neat to it's neat to see that. Yeah, and, and it's a different I mean, it's a different era now that we, that we live in where it's you know, it's not just radio that, that, that uh, turns people onto bands, which which is um, I mean it's instrumental in, in the way in our the way that things have happened for us because um, like the song was found on the internet for instance you know when when it was first blogged about it, it wasn't because of radio initially it was because of uh, you know showing it on the blog so. Um, I'm very thankful that there's other ways that music gets out there now. Um, and I've been seeing you've been making the rounds on late night shows. You've done Jimmy Kimmel and Jay Leno and, and David Letterman. Uh, how is the whole been? Ex- I'm sorry, what? No, I was just going to say, how has the whole experience been for you? Uh, uh, those things are, are surreal. When you're on one of those shows, and it's a whole different thing, because especially when we did Letterman, that was the last one that we did. And and Letterman is the only show that we really get in Australia. Um, like growing up, that was always on TV late at night. So we knew, you know, that set is famous, and obviously David Letterman is famous. As are the other shows we've done, but in, in Australia, that's the one that everybody knows. So um, that was kind of the funny thing was for our friends back home. That was kind of the moment where they all kind of got what was happening over here because Letterman was the, they could they could identify with the Letterman show. But that was. It's an, it's, that was an amazing feeling. I, so I, I liked your version of Daft Punk's Get Lucky. I just I just heard that. And personally, I think that's going to be like the song of the summer. You know, like there's always one song that you hear no matter where you are. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that that was my question, actually, was besides your own songs, which have a, have a chance too, was there any other song that you thought might be a candidate for for the song you're going to hear everywhere? I mean that, that that's the one, isn't it? Like right now, that's the one I'd pick. I can't see anyone uh, trumping that one. 
I think that it's going to get so played over the uh, over this summer that it's going to get worn out. I mean, I love it. I love Daft Punk. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, I've, I've already heard that everywhere. I mean, even the last few, how many weeks has it been out for now? Yeah, uh, no, three weeks. Well, and their their album actually just dropped um, yesterday. But yeah, the, the the single has been out for only a couple of weeks. But yeah, it's already everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. I mean, we we did it just for, uh, when we with that version that we did was done in Amsterdam. It was just done for fun. Um, I didn't actually expect anybody other than the, the people listening to the radio station to hear it. But uh, but it got out. So the one there you go. Into that. Yeah. Oh yeah, there you go again. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, it's good good timing to have a, a cover of a you know of a big song like that. That's that and it, that sounds so good too. Well, um, I guess that's all the time I have. But thanks, thanks a lot. I'll I'll look forward to you coming to Detroit. Thanks again to Keith for doing the interview, and thanks to Shannon from BB Gun Press uh, for setting it up and Here Magazine. Up next, Mike Schwartz talking about Ozploitation Cinema. In northern Australia, there are 5,000 square miles of sand, scrub, and searing heat. A desolate, primitive place that can take a man and destroy him. They call it the Outback. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Schwartz, and you just heard a clip from the American trailer for the film Wake in Fright, released as Outback in America. It's a fitting way to start this week's podcast, since I plan on talking about Australian cinema and I will focus mostly on these films that I call the Outback films this week. Next week, I'll talk about some other Australian movies as well. On an earlier podcast, I talked about Australian horror films in the context of animal attacks movies, including an amazing little eco-thriller called The Long Weekend, which I certainly hope you've all seen by now, and a hallucinatory man-against-nature-against-man film called Razorback. And the classic mystical outback film Picnic at Hanging Rock as well, which is, of course, very well known. And this led me to dig deeper into Australian cinema, especially after seeing the powerful, unforgettable Wake and Fright, which was recently re-released to American theaters and released on DVD last year. And it's an excellent film I plan to go into in some depth here. But first, uh, I just want to outline a little bit of the history of of these films. So reflecting the outlaw history and its own Wild West background, Australia in the 70s and 80s produced some of the most radical, shocking, creepy, exploitive, violent, depressing, and surreal films of any country in the world. Now this included period pieces about Australia's colonization and outlaw past, cheapies and exploitation fare, many of which were produced under Australia's 10BA law uh, as tax write-offs and films meant to quickly capitalize on American film trends and tailored for an American audience, as well as elegant coming-of-age stories involving rites of passage and films covering a dazzling array of topics, including mysterious alien visitations, deadly nuclear accidents, twisted family histories, vacationing city dwellers confronting a hostile natural world, near-future post-apocalyptic nightmares, sexual repression movies, and psychotic road trips. Many of these films have an otherworldly quality to them, featuring the wild and empty-seeming expanses of the outback, and are interested in the frontier mentality of European settlers' survival on the edge of the unknown world. The films I discussed several weeks ago, The Long Weekend, Razorback, and Picnic at Hanging Rock, are excellent examples of this. So prior to the early 70s, Australia barely had a film industry at all. And then, in the grip of a strong nationalist sentiment, the Australian New Wave happens. You've certainly heard of directors like Peter Weir and Bruce Beresford. And suddenly, Australia had a vibrant commercial film industry that sold tickets and won awards at festivals. Many of these films showed Australia, its people, the landscape, the myths, in a favorable light. This was an Australia that Australians wanted to see, or wanted the world to see. They often portrayed an image of an Australia in harmony with the natural world, of romanticized bushmen, sheep shearers, and range riders, and men like the American cowboy who lived by their own code and put their stamp on the land. 
They mostly featured white men valiantly battling for survival and rarely, if ever, featured women or aboriginal peoples. These men were innocent Eden dwellers and were full of youthful vitality and that quintessential Australian quality, mateship. They hearkened back to their ancestors who settled the land, many of whom were descended from British prisoners. They fought in wars overseas and against the elements back at home, ignoring or suppressing the aboriginal culture that came before them. These films rarely questioned the myth of Australian virility, mateship, and manifest destiny. Many of these films gained international recognition and include such famous examples as Gallipoli, The Irishman, and The Man from Snowy River. Now, there were also other films, some art films and some known as Ozploitation, including those by budding directors like Peter Weir, Fred Shepsey, and Richard Franklin. And these films were more interested in debunking these national myths, or challenging them, and in some cases building new myths of their own. Some of these films used humor and satire, like Peter Weir's Too Early for Its Time, The Cars That Ate Paris, which was a hit at the Cannes Film Festival, but a bomb back at home. Some used a socialist, social realist approach, such as A Sunday Too Far Away, which depicted the real challenges of living off the land. And some sought to strip away the thin veneer of civilization to show what lies underneath, as in Wake and Fright or The Long Weekend. And then there were the rare films that successfully created new myths of their own, such as the hero of the near future, Mad Max, or the vengeful massive wild boar in Razorback. Many of these films referenced Australia's penal colony history, uh, such as Brian Trenchard Smith's Turkey Shoot and Dead End Drive-In, both of which take place in futuristic prisons. Uh, very few of these films looked at Australia's original sin of the mistreatment of the Aborigines by white settlers. Uh, a rare exception includes Fred Shepsey's The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. So in, in all these ways, Australia is quite similar to America, and just as American films could glorify the conquering of the frontier, and similar to American Westerns, the films I'm going to talk about today uh, are, are like revisionist Westerns in how they challenged the stories that the Australian nation told itself. Uh, some of the Ozploitation films, basically Australian exploitation films, set out to shock audiences through violent and bizarre imagery, borrowing liberally from Hollywood and American B-films. The films of the New Wave, the Australian New Wave, took a subtler approach. They borrowed heavily from European art cinema, including Italian neorealism and the French New Wave. Among these films, both the Ozploitation and the New Wave films, I'm going to look mainly at the Outback films, or Outback Gothic films, films that countered the simplistic images of the Outback by portraying it as a place of danger and mystery, transcendence and terror, a place of ineffable beauty and unconcealed hostility that is as much a character as John Ford's Monument Valley in the American Westerns. This is not the outback of benevolent, harmonious human settlements or a nature-worshipping idol. Rather, it's an immense landscape that often threatens to overtake the tiny human beings that attempt to reside in it, and which serves to emphasize the fragility and transitory nature of human lives in the unchanging wilderness. These films show us how this harsh and challenging environment of the Australian bush can brutalize the people who live in it, leading them to treat each other and themselves brutally. Come on, have a drink, mate. Thanks. Come on, have a drink. No, just let me take a minute. Come on, come on, have a drink. Look, mate, I've given up drinking for a while. What's wrong with you, you bastard? Why don't you come and drink with me? I just brought you 50 miles late and dust and you won't drink with me. Look, What's wrong with you? What's the matter? What's the matter? Sponge on you. Burn your house down, murder your wife, rape your child. That's all right. Don't have a drink with you. Not have a flaming bloody drink with you. That's a criminal offense. That's the end of the bloody world. You're mad, you bastard. You just heard a clip from the film, another clip from the film Wake and Fright, which is as pure an example of the Outback film as you're likely to find and was one of the first films to bring Australia's nascent cinema to national attention. Actually, international attention, I should say. Although it was directed by Canadian Ted Kotcheff, there's an affinity between the Canadian and Australian outback, just as there is with the American West. Both landscapes force people to confront their vulnerability and tempt some into leading a primal, hedonistic, and Hobbesian existence. 
Wake and Fright is about the nightmare journey of a cultured, civilized school teacher forced to teach at a school deep in the outback by Australians, Australia's educational system of indentured labor. Which, you know, to quit in this system means that you'll forfeit your annual pay. The teacher is full of good mateship and cultural refinement at the beginning. However, he's soon deadened by the meaningless expanses of desert surrounding his little schoolhouse and very quickly descends to the base level, same base level as the beer-swilling, kangaroo-killing, women-hating locals in an area of the outback known as the Yaba, an outpost deep in the bush. The code of this world seems to be cruelty, sexual assault, and killing animals for fun are okay, but to turn down a beer is the ultimate sin. It is the brutal, dehumanizing effect of the outback that causes civilized men to become primitives, and the school teacher is confronted with his Mephistophelian, let me say that properly, counterparts in the character played by Donald Pleasance, who gives him a guided tour through this amoral universe. The teacher becomes the pupil and also ends up becoming the victim as well. The most notorious scene in Wake and Fright is the kangaroo hunts. It was actually filmed by the crew uh, who tagged along on a real kangaroo hunt. However, the moment in the film that resonated the most for me was the bizarre moment where everyone pauses from all the debauchery, the gambling, the drinking, the carousing, for a national prayer before resuming the debauch once the prayer is finished. The critic Robert Hood says of Wake and Fright that it is, quote, an intense piece of cinema, a dusty, larger-than-life depiction of small-town industrial rural life, which exposes the violent and repressive nature of a society spawned out of isolation and the abuse of nature. Sexual segregation, antagonisms towards the outsider, bizarre mateship rituals, including an almost surreal kangaroo hunt, and an oppressive air of lethargy and frustration combine to present a grim picture of outback life. Man is brutalized, and even social and sexual relations are predicated on violence. This is civilization in a state of moral collapse. Many of these themes and images will recur again and again in Australian films. Well, you just heard another clip from the Nicholas Regg film Walkabout, which is another film made by a foreigner, Nicholas Regg, a British director, which also portrays the outback as a place of danger and discovery, and yet it's more nuanced than Wake and Fright. The outback here is a place that has the power to turn men into violent creatures or bring them together in a fight for survival. Walkabout consists of vignettes, impressions, and tableau, which give it a surreal, dreamlike quality. Two white children survive an attempted filicide by their father and wander through the outback, attempting to make their way back to civilization with the help of an aboriginal boy. Despite the initially positive, culture-bridging encounter, the white girl and the aboriginal boy are unable to rise above their cultural differences, and their encounter ends in tragedy. In this highly allegorical film, the white children adrift in the outback represent white man's alienation from the natural world, while the aboriginal boy represents the vulnerability of the aboriginal culture in the face of encroaching European civilization. The white girl and boy return to this civilization scarred by the whole experience, while the aboriginal boy takes his own life after having his elaborate courtship ritual rejected by the girl. Sure, it's all a little bit over the top and not overly complex, but the film retains an unmistakable power. So I've already discussed The Long Weekend and Razorback on that previous podcast, so I'll only briefly offer up a couple of quotes that illustrate how both of these films present a critical view of Australians' boorish behavior and their love-hate relationship with their environment. Here is Jonathan Rayner from Terror Australis on The Long Weekend. It works not through direct narrative statement, but through the juxtaposition of image and event. It represents an unusual approach to the revenge of nature theme insofar as the couple's assailants are not some barely natural monster, but rather the less insistent menace of ants, birds, a possum, the thick undergrowth, all acting in a way which in a less intense context we would consider ordinary. And here is Kim Newman on Razorback. 
American hero Gregory Harrison, investigating the disappearance of his animal rights campaigner wife, finds himself caught between a pair of degenerates who kill kangaroos for pet food and a marauding wild boar of amazing size and strength. Here, man's savage treatment of nature is matched by man's savage treatment of man. Harrison, wandering alone in the desert, suffers a series of heat-induced hallucinations that scarcely seem weirder than the found images like a car stranded in a tree by a flash flood. What we see and what we seem are but a dream, a dream within a dream. We just heard another film clip from Peter Weir's very famous Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is the most haunting and mystical of all of the Outback films. Hanging Rock is a mysterious place full of terror and ecstasy, death and sexuality, a counterpoint to the repressed Victorian propriety of the English school that the film's adolescent girls attend on the edge of the bush. The film contains no literal threats like the yabos of Wake and Fright or the vengeful animals of The Long Weekend and Razorback, but it is more unsettling than any of these films, primarily through its atmosphere of supernatural menace and numinous release. Hanging Rock contains some of the same elements as these other films, a sense of timelessness, a threatening presence to the animals, a sense of abject loneliness of the bush, but it is far more mysterious than any of these films. The narrative, aided by the excellent cinematography and evocative soundtrack, consists entirely of a trip to the rock formation known as Hanging Rock by a group of sexually repressed girls on St. Valentine's Day. Several of them disappear into the phallic alien landscape of rock, and the ones that are left behind react in disparate ways. The disappearance, although off-camera and never explained, is both utterly frightening and transcendent at the same time. The girls seem strangely eager to go to their fate, which is never disclosed, and Weir's ambivalence about the Outback makes for a powerful viewing experience, even if we're not exactly sure what it all adds up to. Peter Weir's next film, The Last Wave, is a much more literally apocalyptic revenge of nature film. The Last Wave looks at white people's mistreatment of the Aborigines and their own disconnection from the natural landscape. Here, it's not the outback that threatens, since the film takes place in Sydney, but it's the weather with violent rainfall, destructive storms, and the titular last wave. It's a less successful film than Hanging Rock, but it continues Weir's fascination with Australia's historical and spiritual roots. Because it's more of an urban film than an outback film, I'll look at it more closely next week when I'll discuss several urban films in in Australia. However, I will note here that an even better film to check out on the theme of the relationship between Australia's European settlers and the Aborigines is Fred Shepsey's The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. It's also not technically an outback film, but it does make great use of the brown barren mountains and the little settlements that have cropped up on the edge of the desert. Jimmy, an Aboriginal man raised to be the perfect servant to the white overlords, becomes an outlaw as he gives vent to his pent-up rage and frustration. The violence in the film is explosive and comes as an utter shock. After Jimmy's revolt, he takes his place among Australia's mythic outlaws in such films as Philip Nora's Mad Dog Morgan and Ned Kelly. I'm a tired stranger. No stranger. You're Daniel Morgan. Quite a man. He's a name with a thousand pounds reward and blood on his hands. I told you not to go for the police. You tell him I'm coming across that river. What call you, Signore? Call me Mr. Daniel Morgan. That was a clip from Mad Dog Morgan which, along with Ned Kelly, feature tales of Robin Hood-esque bushranger characters, legendary, legendary historical figures who take a stand against a corrupt law and society in an attempt to pursue their own form of vigilante justice. Every Australian child grows up learning of these characters, which makes these films somewhat flawed since foreigners uh, take the lead roles, Dennis Hopper in Mad Dog Morgan and Mick Jagger in Ned Kelly. This importing of talent has plagued Australian cinema throughout its young history, as producers attempt to give Australian films some international legitimacy. 
But at least Mad Dog Morgan also stars the aboriginal actor David Gullipil, who was also in Walkabout and The Last Wave, and who actually went on a walkabout in the middle of the film shoots. There are several other period films that take place in the outback as well, such as the horror film The Inn of the Damned, but they are even less successful, and they don't make much use of their outback setting. A much more conventional outback picture than Picnic at Hanging Rock is the made-for-TV movie Fortress, about the kidnapping of an American schoolteacher and her students, and their attempts to use the bush to overcome their captors. The twist is that the children become just as brutal and savage as their captors. Again, another example of the brutalizing nature of the outback, even in what at first seems to be an innocuous made-for-TV movie. It's difficult to get the scene where the kids join in the stabbing and battering of one of the kidnappers out of your head. The film Fair Game is similar in that it is a tale of a woman menaced by kangaroo hunters who eventually gets her revenge on them. I haven't yet seen this film, so I can't really comment on it here. However, Quentin Tarantino is a big fan, so it's on my list. Another film that I haven't yet seen, which supposedly presents a more positive and balanced portrayal of the outback, is Sunday Too Far Away, about sheep shearers in competition with each other. The truck driver plays games. The hitchhiker plays games. Aren't you kind of young to be hitchhiking out here all by yourself? Aren't you kind of old to be picking me up? And a killer is playing the deadliest game of all. An unconventional but completely entertaining Outback film is Richard Franklin's Hitchcockian slasher film Road Games, which uses the endless stretches of highway that crisscross the Outback as an effective backdrop for its tale of two American drifters traveling through Australia. They play road games, just as Jimmy Stewart does, makes up stories about the apartment dwellers he observes in Rear Window, uh, fantasizing about the people they see in neighboring cars on the highway. The two Americans are shadowed by a serial killer in a van, leaving a trail of bodies in his wake, and they eventually become implicated in the crimes. As in many Australian genre films, the director imported two Americans to play the main roles. Stacey Keach plays the truck driver, and Jamie Lee Curtis plays his hitchhiker, which actually works to the film's favor, since they both play outsiders, observing the world around them, but seemingly at a remove from it. Curtis's performance in particular reminds viewers of John Carpenter's Halloween, which was a big hit in Australia, and had a big influence on the Australian slasher films, which followed, some of which I'll discuss next week. Road Games was written by Everett de Roche, who also wrote The Long Weekend and Razorback, among many other classics of Australian cinema, and it was directed by the great genre director Richard Franklin, who had made a frightening and efficient little horror film called Patrick a year earlier, also written by de Roche. I'll talk about Patrick more next week, since it's such a classic horror film, but I will say Franklin has been compared to both Hitchcock and Roman Polanski, and he actually studied at USC with John Carpenter, as well as George Lucas and John Milius, uh, and he met his idol Alfred Hitchcock while he was there. And like several other Australian directors, including Peter Weir, George Miller, Bruce Beresford, Philip Noyce, and Fred Shepsey, he ended up going to Hollywood to make films, including the underrated Psycho 2. Road Games is one of many films that displays Australians' fascination with cars and car culture. Another parallel with American culture in this sense. You know, if Australia had any surfing films, I could make that obvious comparison as well. These films acknowledge that death by auto, or autocide, easily outranks homicide and suicide as the leading cause of death in the latter half of the 20th century. This fascination and fear of an auto-dominated world can be seen in other films like Peter Weir's The Cars That Ate Paris, the cult biker film Stone, the B-film Fair Game, and of course Mad Max and the Road Warrior. Welcome to Paris. That happens in hospitals all over the country, all over the world. Accident. But... That's the world we live in. That's the world of the motor car. The Cars That Ate Paris is a dark satire on this fascination with and the problematic, problematic aspects of car culture, and it features a town that lives off car accidents. The inhabitants of Paris, Australia, cause auto accidents to happen 
so they can scavenge the remains and perform medical experiments on the victims. Like Wake in Fright, one such victim is slowly inducted into this brutal, violent society, which by the end implodes on itself. It's an interesting side note. I discussed the love-hate relationship that Americans have with cars and car-dominated cities in a previous podcast on the Futurama exhibit at the New York World's Fair of 1939. It's interesting to compare Australian and American cinema, both, both in the way that they look at their frontiers, the central subject of American westerns and Australian outback films, and in their attitudes toward car and road culture. It's also interesting to note that The Cars That Ate Paris was a big influence on Roger Corman's Death Race 2000. And when you're on a bike, I mean a big bike, you've got all power, man. On the, move. the cult biker film Stone, you just heard a clip from that film, presents a romanticized and violently cartoonish portrayal of Australian biker culture that is apparently quite accurate. The cast and crew were reportedly just as sexist, violent, and poorly behaved as the characters they portray. From the beginning, it's the bikers in the film who prove to be the unlikely victims, and ultimately the heroes, against the corrupt businessmen and politician in politicians involved in the drug trade and political assassinations. I can't really recommend this film because, frankly, it's not that good. However, it is fascinating to watch, especially when you consider that the director and star, Sandy Harbutt, repeatedly put his cast and crew in harm's way and encouraged an atmosphere of real mayhem on the set. And if anything, the film is worth watching for the incredible stunts performed by legendary Australian stuntman Grant Page, as well as an interesting psychedelic opening sequence and a bloody and true-to-the-biker-code ending. These car, bike, and road movies aren't really outback films per se, since many of them take place in industrial locales, but they nonetheless have the same feel as the outback films, since the disposable, barren, and soulless urban and suburban landscapes have a similar brutalizing effect on residents. No film portrays this better than George Miller's seminal Mad Max and the Road Warrior, which, as I mentioned earlier, have done the most to create a new Australian myth of the anti-hero vigilante, with clear roots in the Mad Dog Morgans and the Ned Kellys of Australia's outlaw past. Continuing the theme established in Fortress, Stone, and Fair Game of marauding gangs of thugs looking to rape and pillage and in many cases use their vehicles to kill, Mad Max also adds American genre films into the mix, including westerns, science fiction, police procedurals, and vigilante films, to create one of the most visually stunning action films ever made. But I'm sure I don't really need to tell you all this, because I know you've all seen Mad Max, or at least its sequel, The Road Warrior, and, you know, Beyond Thunderdome ain't half bad either. Mad Max and The Road Warrior became huge international mega-hits, launching Mel Gibson on the road to stardom. In fact, Mad Max, like few other Australian films before it, maybe Patrick comes to mind, influenced dozens of American and European films. Director George Miller, a doctor in an Australian hospital, saw many cases of autocide and has said of this film, quote, The Americans have a gun culture. We have a car culture. Out in the suburbs, cars are a socially acceptable form of violence. That's the wellspring of a film like this. The Road Warrior ups the ante with a full-on post-apocalyptic nightmare world of fuel-hunting barbarians versus a resilient community holding on to the edge of the wasteland by their fingernails. Max, the anti-hero, has by now officially attained mythic status. Apparently, a fourth sequel is already in post-production, but it is without Mad Mel, if that matters to anyone out there. We are all part of a great society, one which is the product of many generations of thought. While it is true that in the past mistakes have been made, we now know that this society depends upon the wholehearted cooperation of every one of its members. There is no room for shirkers, malcontents, or deviates. And we are here to help you regain your rightful places in that great society. Freedom is obedience. Obedience is work. Work is life. Brian Trenchard Smith's Turkey Shoot is a far more cartoonish near-future dystopia 
and is certainly very literal about using Australia's penal colony origins to comment on modern fascist governments, or something like that. One of the bad guys in the film is named Thatcher. The film combines elements of prison films, most dangerous game films, and generational warfare films, I guess I'm thinking of films like The Great Escape, The Naked Prey, and Wild in the Streets, for what is the ultimate Ozploitation film. One could say that the film takes a kitchen sink approach, except that funding and budget issues limited Trenchard Smith's options and leave the film looking rather dog-eared. According to rumors, live ammo was actually used on the set, so apparently the phoniness of the sets needed to be offset by creating a real atmosphere of danger during the filming. The film, though, still manages to be fun, playful, and offensive, a trashy, gory version of Peter Watkins' Punishment Park. Trenchard Smith's later Frog Dreaming is a very different film, a youth-oriented adventure that seeks to debunk an Australian fairy tale, that of the Bunyip. The rational explanation at the end is extremely anticlimactic, and the film is unfortunately dull. Much better is Trenchard Smith's classic dead-end drive-in, which puts the generational conflict from Turkey Shoot at the center of the film, within a concentration camp drive-in. Adapted from a Peter Carey story, the film tackles political and social issues through hyper-stylized filmmaking with garish art direction and neon-streaked cinematography. Once again, as in Mad Max, characters do battle with car with the cars in an industrial wasteland. So Mad Max and the Road Warrior are also indicative of a trend in Australian urban films that I will talk about next week, the tendency of Australian cityscapes to stand in for a generic universal city, a kind of any town earth. I'll also talk a little bit more about coming of age films and films about weird, twisted and very non-traditional families next week. So definitely tune in for that. And on that note, I want to thank you again for hanging with me and Neil for about an hour or so. I do look forward to talking with you more about Australian films next week. And look, I didn't even say mate. I've gone the whole podcast without saying it. So we'll see if I can make it through next week's episode without saying it as well. Thanks, Mike. And Mike can be found at HappyWanderer13 on Twitter. He doesn't have a picture on Twitter. I need to get on him for that because he's kind of anonymous. He looks just like a Twitter egg. Check him out. I'm also, I'm at Candle underscore ends. You can go to the Facebook page for Candle Ends. You can go to my website, CandleEnds.com, whatever you want to do. To finish this week's show, we have a track from Atlas Genius. This is their song Trojans, which became such a big hit on the internet. And I should mention that they are touring the United States currently, and they will be in the Detroit area on June 24th at the shelter. So check them out when they come to town. Hey, have a good week. We'll be back with you with more Hunting for Candleland soon. So um, put another barb on the shrimpy. Take it off, take it in Take off all the thoughts of what we've been Take a look, hesitate Take a picture you could never recreate Write a song, make it known
Change the scene, change it all, we can't change 